Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, which is charting Russia through the revolution, and we're on a chapter about the economic policies of the Bolshevik government as they change to be more compromised when dealing with the disastrous post-war situation, and the tensions that arise out of that as they attempt to course-correct. The Inner Party Struggle Logically, NEP implied political as well as economic reform, but this was never something the leadership could countenance. Indeed, it concluded that liberalisation on the economic front required an intensification of the party's monopoly of power, and party leaders were increasingly willing publicly to voice the party's absolute right to rule. In April 1923, Zinoviev told the 12th Party Congress, quote, It is impossible to agree with the paradoxical view that the presidium of the Soviet CEC carries out the same role for the Soviets as the Central Committee does for the party. It's totally incorrect. The Central Committee is the Central Committee, whether it be for the Soviets, the trade unions, the cooperatives, the provincial executives, or the whole working class. In that resides its leading role. In that is expressed the dictatorship of the party. End quote. Footnote 54. Zinoviev would come to rue his words as the space for dissent within the party dramatically narrowed. The 10th Party Congress in 1921 imposed a ban on factions that was supposed to be temporary, authorizing the Central Committee, quote, to apply all measures of party punishment up to and including expulsion from the party in cases of violation of discipline or of a revival or toleration of factionalism. End quote. Footnote 55. When in May 1921, Gavril Miaznikov, a worker who had been a party member for 15 years, wrote an article calling for freedom of expression for workers and peasants, from anarchist to monarchist opinion. Lenin demanded that the Perm Provincial Committee discipline him. The committee ordered the party branch at the Modovilica Works, where Miaznikov worked, not to elect him to a forthcoming conference on account of his unwholesome thoughts. But his former comrades protested, quote, If one discounts lies, slanders, and abuse, the provincial committee knows of no other way of dealing with those who think differently than repression. Footnote 56. Needless to say, Miaznikov was soon out on his ear. In the second half of 1921, Lenin's health declined, significantly affecting his ability to work. The 11th Party Congress in April 1922 was the last he would lead. In May, he suffered a brain hemorrhage and two further strokes towards the end of the year. Skirmishing commenced within the party oligarchy to determine who should succeed him, with the so-called Troika, or Triumvirate, of Zinoviev, Stalin, and Kamenev emerging as the controlling group within the Politburo. In 1920, Lenin had backed these three as a counterweight to Trotsky. In addition, he had backed Stalin's becoming general secretary of the party in April 1922, impressed by his organizational skills. Despite his illness, towards the end of that year, he became increasingly concerned about Stalin's personality and modus operandi. In December, 
Seeking to influence the makeup of the party leadership after his death, he wrote a testament in which he compared, in somewhat begrudging fashion, the qualities of six of his lieutenants. Trotsky was praised for his outstanding abilities, but chided for excessive self-assurance and a preoccupation with administrative matters. Stalin received his harshest criticism, judged as being rude, intolerant, and capricious, and Lenin urged that he be removed from the post of general secretary. See figure 6.1. The intention was to keep the testament secret, but Lenin's secretaries told Stalin of its contents, prompting him to keep Lenin incommunicado, under the surveillance of doctors who reported to him alone. Despite his frailty, Lenin struggled to thwart Stalin's pretensions, objecting vigorously to the way he rode roughshod over those Georgian communists who dared to oppose his plan to absorb Georgia into the RSFSR. When on the 4th of March 1923, he learned of an incident in which Stalin had subjected Krupskaya to a storm of coarse abuse, he fired off a furious missive, threatening to break off relations with the general secretary. But Lenin's struggle against the marvellous Georgian, whom he had done much to promote, though prescient, came too late. On the 10th of March, he suffered a massive stroke that left him speechless and paralysed. He died on the 21st of January, 1924. Footnote 57. Trotsky was by far the most gifted and charismatic of Lenin's successors and did not lack popularity, particularly in the Komsomol. Yet he was heartily disliked by the triumvirate, and this was one reason why he prevaricated in putting himself forward as Lenin's successor. Fearful of appearing to be factionalist, Trotsky let slip several opportunities to consolidate his position, declining to give the political report to the 12th Party Congress in April 1923, and thus allowing the triumvirate to consolidate its authority, and refusing to become deputy chair of the Council of People's Commissars. Only in September 1923, Against the background of the Scissors crisis, did he come out and lambast the regime within the party. The Declaration of the 46 marked the inception of the left opposition, which condemned the bureaucratization of the party and called for accelerated industrialization in order to strengthen the social weight of the proletariat. During 1924, Stalin and Zinoviev waged a vituperative campaign against the left opposition, impugning Trotsky's claim to be a Bolshevik by drawing attention to his many conflicts with Lenin prior to 1917. Since Trotsky had been no friend to earlier opposition groups within the party, his belated conversion to the cause of inner party democracy was seen by many as little more than a cover for his Bonapartist ambitions. At the 13th Party Congress in 1924, he and Evgeny Priobrazensky attempted a compromise with the leadership, but were heaped with obloquy for their pains. So determined were the seven other members of the Politburo to block what they considered to be Trotsky's self-aggrandizing ambition that from August 1924, they met as a caucus before each Politburo meeting. 
in late 1924 to counter the left's claim that international revolution was the only means to ensure Russia's survival as a socialist state, Stalin enunciated the new doctrine of socialism in one country, thereby initiating a process that ended in the 1930s with the rehabilitation of Russia's imperial history and traditions. In January 1925, Trotsky was removed from the presidency of the Revolutionary Military Council. Zinoviev and Kamenev, who had no illusions about Stalin's ambitions, were increasingly alarmed at his attempts to undermine their position, but they concentrated their fire on Bukharin, the most eloquent defender of NEP, since they believed that under his influence excessive concessions were being made to the peasantry. They were, of course, fully aware that behind Bukharin stood Stalin. At the 14th Party Congress in December 1925, they attacked the General Secretary's vast concentration of power, to howls of outrage from the floor. But although Trotsky and Zinoviev remained on the Politburo, they were unable to stop Molotov, Kalinin, and Voroshilov, staunch allies of Stalin, being brought in. In summer 1926, an astounding turn of events took place when Zinoviev and Kamenev joined forces with their erstwhile foe, Trotsky, to form the United Opposition. Determined to annihilate this new challenge, Stalin aligned with the right wing of the party, led by Bukharin, Rykov, now head of Council of People's Commissars, and Tomsky, the trade union leader. In October 1926, Trotsky and Zinoviev were removed from the Central Committee, accused of representing a social democratic deviation, one of the worst insults in the Bolshevik lexicon, and by November 1927 they were expelled from the party. At the 15th Party Congress in December 1927, Rykov, reflecting on the split in the party, declared, quote, I think we cannot guarantee that the prison population will not have to increase somewhat in the near future. End quote. In January 1928, Trotsky was exiled to Alma-Ata, a preliminary to his deportation and ultimate assassination at the hands of one of Stalin's henchmen in August 1940. As the grain procurement crisis deepened in 1927-28, Stalin distanced himself from the moderate gradualism of the right. Bukharin, though a brilliant theoretician, was no match for him politically, and the right opposition hardly functioned as an organized faction. The denouement came in 1928 when Stalin called for a decisive struggle against right opportunism, by April 1929, Bukharin had been hounded from the Politburo and the right opposition smashed. Footnote 58. At the heart of the inner party struggle was a conflict about the optimal strategy for industrializing Soviet Russia in conditions of economic backwardness and international isolation. The centrality of class within Bolshevik ideology, however, meant that the debates focused not on technical economic questions, but on whether particular policies were proletarian or bourgeois in their implications. Trotsky accepted the framework of NEP, the market, material incentives, and the alliance with the peasantry, but emphasized the primacy of building state industry and supporting the proletariat. 
His ally, Priyo Brzezinski, insisted that investment in industrial growth could be acquired only by squeezing the peasantry through fiscal and financial mechanisms and called for the state to limit the operations of the market through comprehensive planning. Footnote 59. On the right wing of the party, Bukharin argued that the preservation of the alliance with the peasantry was the overriding requirement. Peasants should be allowed to prosper. His slogan, Enrich Yourselves, outraged the left. In his view, rising demand for consumer goods would be met by the more efficient state sector, which would gradually squeeze out the private sector. In addition, peasants would be encouraged to join consumer cooperatives, and this would give them a competitive advantage over the kulaks. Taxes and profits from state factories would then provide funds to invest in industry and collective farms. Bukharin squarely recognized that progress would be slow, likening his program to riding into socialism on a peasant nag, and this left him open to the charge from the united opposition that his pro-peasant orientation in reality strengthened Kulak forces. Footnote 60. So long as NEP seemed to be working, Stalin pursued a middle course, successfully exploiting divisions among his opponents, though his supporters were concerned that too much freedom was being left to market forces. As late as April 1927, Stalin inclined to the right rather than to the left. In 1926, he opposed the Dnieper Dam project on the grounds that it was like a peasant buying a gramophone when he should be repairing his plough. However, as the evidence mounted that NEP was running into the sand, he switched course decisively. Calling in 1928 for a pace of industrialization far more hectic than anything envisaged by the left. Facing a country that was not only economically feeble, but falling further behind the advanced capitalist powers, the Stalin group came to believe that speed was of the essence. A decisive breakthrough to socialism could come only by breaking with NEP. An often overlooked factor, too, was that military leaders, whose budget had been slashed to stabilize the ruble, were now lobbying for rapid expansion of military as well as civilian production in the wake of the war scare of 1927. Footnote 61. As this suggests, one cannot interpret the inner party conflict as simply a naked power struggle although the issue of power was at the heart of the conflict. Lenin had ruled by virtue of his charisma rather than his formal position, and he bequeathed a structure of weak but bloated institutions that relied for direction on a strong leader. Stanislaw Kozier, Polish-born secretary of the Siberian Bureau, reported to the Central Committee on the 5th of April 1923 on the effect of Lenin's illness. Quote, among party members, there is great anxiety. For many, the Central Committee and party leadership are synonymous with Lenin, and now it is difficult to imagine how the party can exist without him. End quote. Footnote 62. Yet, no one in the oligarchy enjoyed anything approaching Lenin's authority, so the question of who should succeed him also raised the fundamental question of how power was to be institutionalized. The left opposition, though hardly champions of democracy, stood for collective leadership rather than personal dictatorship, 
for tolerance of a range of opinion within the party and against the extreme concentration of power in the central organs of the party. Yet psychologically, they were ill-fitted for opposition since they believed in the paramount importance of discipline and unity and were terrified of being seen as splitters. This disarmed them ideologically and psychologically. No more pathetic evidence for which exists than Trotsky's admission to the 13th Party Congress in May 1924 that, quote, the party in the last analysis is always right. I know that one must not be right against the party, end quote. Stalin ably traded on the widespread fear of disunity, building up a reputation as a champion of orthodoxy against assorted malcontents. By harping on Trotsky's differences with Lenin in the past, he was able to attach himself to the growing cult of Lenin, not least through the publication in 1924 of his Foundations of Leninism, a book plagiarized from the work of Philip Ksenofontov, 1903-1938, which presented Lenin as the unchallengeable touchstone of ideological rectitude. This became the textbook that shaped the political education of tens of thousands of new recruits, who were easily convinced that the anti-Leninism of the opposition deprived them of any right to a fair hearing. How far Stalin's rise was due to his control of the party machine and his ability to build up a network of loyal clients has been disputed following the opening of the Secretariat Archives. From April 1922, he was the only Bolshevik who was simultaneously a full member of the Politburo, the Secretariat, and the weaker Organizational Bureau. We know that one of his first acts as General Secretary was to order provincial party secretaries to report to him personally by the 5th of each month. And between April 1922 and March 1923, the Organizational Bureau made over 1,000 appointments including 42 provincial party secretaries. Footnote 63. Yet the secretariat was barely able to cope with the growing demand for cadres that welled up from below, and Stalin in fact cut the number of positions for which it was responsible from about 22,500 in 1921 to 22 to 6,000 in 1922 to 23. Footnote 64. Local party and state organs were encouraged to promote their own cadres, and this enabled them to form their own networks of clients. Many local party secretaries did vote for Stalin, but more because they approved of his clamping down on factionalism and his calls for party unity. For his part, Stalin maintained good relations with party secretaries, who made up almost half the members of the Central Committee, since they had formal responsibility for electing and removing members of the Politburo. Doubtless, Stalin was able to exercise powers of patronage through the nomenclatura system, but the control of the Secretariat and Organizational Bureau may not have been as vital to his ascent to power as is often supposed. He had a number of other levers at his disposal apart from patronage, including influence over the agenda of the Politburo, control of the press, manipulation of delegates to conferences, and use of the Party Control Commission to weed out anti-party elements. Using a combination of these, he was able to break up the power bases of Zinoviev in Leningrad 
and the supposed rightist stronghold in the capital of Nikolai Uglanov, first secretary of the Moscow Communist Party. In 1928, hundreds of opportunists were arrested by the political police. Stalin always believed himself to be the faithful continuer of the work of Lenin, however vehemently his opponents might impugn his Leninist credentials. Footnote 65. The issue that his opponents most seized on to prove he was departing from Leninist principles was the issue of socialism in one country. Lenin had never denied that Russia could make some headway towards socialism in spite of its backwardness and international isolation, and Trotsky too did not deny this. Trotsky's clash with Stalin came over the issue of whether the socialist revolution could be completed within the boundaries of a single state. In the years up to the First World War, Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution had maintained that leadership of the bourgeois revolution in Russia, that is, the revolution against the autocracy, must fall to the proletariat, and a consequence of this was that the bourgeois stage of revolution would spill over into the socialist stage. In a similar way, following the conquest of power by the proletariat in Russia, Trotsky, and the party as a whole, believed the Russian Revolution was destined to spill over into more advanced capitalist countries, since capitalism was a global system. The political lesson he drew from this was that the overwhelming priority was to hasten international revolution if the Soviet Union were not to be forced into autarky and a permanently defensive foreign policy. Stalin castigated this perspective as thoroughly Menshevik and defeatist permanent gloom, and permanent hopelessness. He and his supporters cast themselves as optimists, as loyal, disciplined doers. He hinted that Trotsky, a Jewish intellectual, was not a true Russian. Quote, lack of faith in the strength and capacities of our revolution, lack of faith in the strength and capacities of the Russian proletariat, that is what lies at the root of the theory of permanent revolution. End quote. Footnote 66. By hitching his colors to the mast of socialism in one country in late 1924, Stalin opened up a positive perspective of backward Russia raising herself up by her bootstraps. This played to the latent nationalism of the burgeoning ranks of young party members, mostly working class men who, while parroting the recently acquired language of class and internationalism, resented the idea that Russia's prospects for achieving a socialist society should depend on revolution in more advanced countries. Stalin recognized the importance of this rank-and-file support, and, almost two decades later, informed his inner circle that in 1927, 720,000 members of the party had voted in favour of the Central Committee line, that is, his own, compared with between four and 6,000 who had voted for Trotsky, and a further 20,000 who had abstained. Trotsky's mistake, Stalin reminisced, had been to concentrate attention on winning over the Central Committee, rather than the rank and file. Footnote 67. It is this ideological and psychological context, as much as a brilliant grasp of machine politics, which explains why Stalin came out on top in the inner party conflict. But it hardly explains how he ended up as one of the 20th century's most savage tyrants. 
To appreciate this, we need to look at his personality. Many historians see his personality as shaped by the fact that he was born into poverty and that his father was a violent drunkard, significant mainly by his absence. But too much can be made of this, since his parents were broadly supportive, certainly of his education. More relevant may be the fact that he became habituated to the use of violence in the Caucasus, with its rebellions and fierce ethnic, religious, and class conflicts. Footnote 68. By the time he reached adulthood, Stalin, who had read Machiavelli, appears to have endorsed his cynical view that, quote, men are ungrateful, fickle, liars, and deceivers. End quote. Footnote 69. Within the Bolshevik party, outshone intellectually by the likes of Trotsky and Kamenev, he made his mark by his immense capacity for hard work. He had an excellent memory and was a first-rate tactician, cool and calculating, and averse to the kind of histrionic gestures to which Zinoviev and Trotsky were prone. In the words of M. I. Ryutin, leader of the last opposition group to resist Stalin's ascendancy in 1932, he was... Quote, narrow-minded, sly, power-loving, vengeful, treacherous, envious, hypocritical, insolent, boastful, stubborn. End quote. Footnote 70. What this misses is Stalin's sociability, his sense of humor, and his apparent lack of side. He appreciated the importance of winning allies, whereas not least of the factors that alienated party members from Trotsky was what Lunacharsky called Quote, his tremendous imperiousness and ability or unwillingness to be at all amiable and attentive to people. End quote. The party state. NEP saw a drastic reduction in the numbers working for the government. During the 1920s, the party steadily increased its control over all organs of government, with the Council of People's Commissars and the CEC of the Soviets becoming firmly subordinated to the Politburo. Yet the party state was still far from being a monolithic leviathan. The party struggled to impose stability on a state administration that comprised a number of relatively autonomous institutions. The economic commissariats, the GPU, the name of the successor to the Cheka from 1922 to 23, the Soviets, and the trade unions. Among the economic commissariats, for example, the respective spheres of competence of the Commissariat of Finance, the State Planning Commission, and the Supreme Council of National Economy remained uncertain, each seeking to expand its authority at the expense of the others, with the Supreme Council of National Economy eventually coming out on top. In 1925, Stalin complained to Vyacheslav Molotov, who was to become one of his most loyal protégés, that on economic questions, it was not the Politburo, but the State Planning Commission that was in charge. Footnote 71. All government ministries, moreover, relied heavily on non-party specialists. Even by 1929, only 14% of personnel in the Commissariat of Agriculture were party members, rising to 24% in the Commissariat of Trade. So despite efforts to promote workers and peasants, white-collar employees constituted the largest proportion of staff in the 13 commissariats of government. 
in the Commissariat of Agriculture, which employed 40,000 people, 97% of staff in the central offices were white-collar employees by social origin, and around half of specialists had worked for the Tsarist government. Footnote 72. Naturally, the party looked on those alien social elements with much distrust, yet it could not survive without their expertise. NEP witnessed the emergence of a new political and social elite. In April 1923, the 12th Party Congress ratified the nomenclatura system, whereby the Central Committee, or the relevant provincial or district committee in the case of more junior officials, was assigned the right to make appointments to all key positions in the party state administration. The Congress agreed that responsible party officials, down to the level of local party secretaries, should be guaranteed rations, housing, uniforms, health care, and rest cures in the Crimea. It was through this mechanism that a new ruling elite began to emerge, comprising party officials at oblast level and above, senior state officials, and leading industrial managers. In 1927, those appointed by the nomenclatura system included some 3,000 to 4,000 higher party officials and about 100,000 officials at middle and lower levels of the party apparatus. Footnote 73. When high-ranking officials in the state apparatus, including senior executives in industry and education, are added, the nomenclatura elite grew to about half a million people out of a total working population of over 86 million. One could also add to this new socialist elite acclaimed members of the artistic and literary worlds. The elite enjoyed important privileges and access to scarce resources, but it was not a class in the capitalist sense, since it was not defined by its ownership of property and wealth, but by office within the party state, office in which it had no security of tenure. Formally speaking, moreover, it was not able to bequeath its privileges to its offspring. In 1925, there were 1,025,000 Bolsheviks in a population of 147 million. A series of purges of party members, a term that had not yet acquired a sinister ring, ensured that the size of the membership remained roughly similar at the end of the 1920s. These purges, which began in June 1921, removed several hundred thousand alien and hostile elements from the party, but, despite the language of infiltration and conspiracy, most were expelled for passivity, careerism, or drunkenness. The purges helped the RKPB to proletarianize itself. By 1927, nearly half of party members were workers by social origin, although over 300,000 workers had, in fact, been promoted to administrative positions. By 1929, 8.5% of all industrial workers were party members, although among workers aged 29 to 23, the proportion was 18.3%. Footnote 74. Most had only primary education and their level of political sophistication was not high. In the mid-1920s, 72% of party members in Varanez were said to be politically illiterate, 
One party secretary finished his report on the celebrations he had organized to mark the anniversary of Bloody Sunday in 1905 with the flourish, quote, Let us fulfill to the end the cause begun by Gapon and Zubatov, end quote. Zubatov was the police chief who had set up pro-government unions between 1901 and 1903, and, unfairly, Gaffon was officially portrayed as a stooge. Footnote 75. The regular purges that took place testified to the ongoing dissatisfaction of the leadership with the quality of cadres and party members. In April 1929, at the 16th Party Congress, the Workers' and Peasants' Inspectorate was ordered to organize a general purge of the apparatus and launch criticism and self-criticism, quote, from top to bottom and from bottom to top, end quote. The influx of poorly educated workers and peasants was paralleled by the eclipse of the old Bolsheviks. In 1925, when party membership stood at well over one million, Fewer than 2,000 had joined the party before 1905. Footnote 76. These old Bolsheviks had suffered imprisonment or exile for their beliefs, and many had lived for periods abroad. They were contemptuous of material comfort, respectful of culture and education, dedicated to a cause whose success was absolutely uncertain. Their values contrasted with those of plebeian incomers, who were doubtless sincere and zealous, yet who no longer risked exile or the noose, who had little understanding of Marxist theory, and who saw party membership as, at best, a matter of conscientiously carrying out centrally determined policy or, at worst, a route to self-advancement. Reports by OGPU, the name the GPU acquired in 1923 following the formation of the Soviet Union, regularly comment on the desire of recruits, quote, to get a higher paying job and a good apartment, end quote. Those lower class party members who were promoted into positions of responsibility in government, industrial administration, trade unions, or education, in Vutskaya Autonomous Region, for instance, they accounted for half of party members, saw their own promotion as proof that the proletariat had become the ruling class. At the same time, the extent of upward social mobility by members of the lower classes should not be exaggerated. Probably no more than 5% of the industrial workforce ever benefited from such promotion. Footnote 77. Meanwhile, the bureaucratization of the party continued, though the trend was universally deplored. In his last years, perhaps under the strain of illness, Lenin's writings took on a dark, pessimistic tone. Quote, we are being sucked into a foul, bureaucratic swamp. End quote. Yet Lenin continued to believe that the solution to the rampant lack of accountability lay in promoting workers to positions within the bureaucracy and getting the Workers' and Peasants' Inspectorate and the Central Control Committee, the agencies responsible for control or monitoring of state party organs, to combat administrative inefficiency and inertia. These agencies themselves, however, rapidly succumbed to the bureaucratic disease they were intended to cure, bombarding lower levels of the administrative hierarchy with demands for plans and reports. 
the promotion of workers into official positions did nothing to mitigate the problems of bureaucracy. Indeed, they often brought new levels of incompetence into administration, and became inured to the hierarchy, subordination, corruption, and careerism that had long been hallmarks of Russian government. The 1920s saw endless exhortations to activists to expose corruption, incompetence, and capriciousness. Yet, official discourse failed to register that much of what was termed bureaucracy was actually functional to the entire operation of power. Middle and lower level party officials had little security of tenure and little institutional protection against vengeful superiors, so they responded to this uncertain environment by developing networks of clients to bolster their influence and protect themselves against the center. Moreover, Periodic campaigns for democracy compounded their sense of insecurity by exposing them to criticism from the rank and file. Thus, in reality, the operation of power was not bureaucratic in the proper sense of the term at all. Despite a proliferating of division of labor, hierarchies of authority, and an ever-lengthening trail of paperwork. For in the last analysis, getting things done depended on personalized authority rather than formal rules. Behind the facade of bureaucratic hierarchy, decision-making, and the implementation of decisions made was in fact in the hands of local bosses, such as Grigol or Zonikids in Tbilisi, Sergei Kirov in Baku, and Filip Goloshikin in Kazakhstan. These men presided over personal fiefdoms and relied on family circles that is, networks of mutual protection, to get things done. In other words, bureaucracy galvanized by clientelism was what kept the party state functioning. One less remarked upon development was the reincorporation of a patriarchal dimension into political relationships. The February Revolution had delivered a sharp blow to the patriarchal principle in political, ecclesiastical, and familial authority and set in its place the fraternal principle of comradeship. As the party state spawned a more hierarchical division of labor, however, fitness for leadership became ever more associated with models of personalized authority. The military commander, the industrial manager, the scientist, that were thoroughly masculine. The bitter struggle for power among the sons that followed Lenin's death signaled the decline of the idiom of revolutionary fraternity and the reinstatement of a model of patriarchal authority. Footnote 78. From the outset, notions of revolutionary brotherhood had served to exclude women from positions of power. In 1928, women comprised 13% of party members, but only 3% of secretaries of party cells, the lowest position in the party hierarchy. Sidelined to work in the Women's Bureau, referred to derisively as Centro Baba, Baba being a pejorative term for women, or in agitprop departments, women were reluctant to challenge men for leadership, and in the rare cases they did, incurred resentment. Footnote 79. The Politburo of the Anzero Sudzensky Township Committee reported in November 1921 to the Tomsk Provincial Committee, quote, the responsible secretary and heads of the political departments are women with an intelligentsia psychology. 
Frequently we hear party members say, what's the point of going to meetings if we have to listen to womanish claptrap? End quote. Footnote 80. Increasingly, therefore, patriarchal conceptions of authority, still very much alive at the popular level, began to assert themselves. In 1926, a 15-year-old girl in Verkhnyadinsk in Siberia wrote to Stalin after she was barred from the pioneers because her father had been briefly a traitor. Quote, I don't look to you as someone high, great, unapproachable, but as my teacher and elder brother, even as my father. End quote. Footnote 81. By the 1930s, Stalin would be widely acclaimed as the wise father of the great family of the Soviet people. Instituting law. With the end of the Civil War, the intention was that the political police, responsible for rooting out counter-revolution, should be rolled back. On the 6th of February 1922, the Cheka was replaced by the GPU, which changed its name again the following year to OGPU. The numbers employed in the political police were cut drastically. At the end of 1921, there were 90,000 employees on the official payroll of the Cheka, but by the end of 1923, only 32,152 worked in OGPU. In the same period, the number of those working clandestinely for the political police fell from 60,000 to 12,900, and by late 1923, the total number in the internal troops, border guards, and escort troops had fallen from 117,000 to 78,400. Footnote 82. The OGBU was no longer permitted to practice terror, but it could try and sentence those arrested for breaches of state security, which included imposing capital sentences, although these could be appealed. After a peak number of capital sentences in 1921 of 9,701, the average over the next eight years fell to 1,654. Footnote 83. None of this should be interpreted to mean that the role of the OGPU had diminished. Within the party, the OGPU now operated as the secret police of the emergent Stalinist leadership, and within society at large, surveillance of the population was stepped up. The OGPU produced regular information summaries on the popular mood, which were circulated among a select group of high-ranking party officials. These were based on OGPU's own interrogations and introspections, on intercepted correspondence, and on reports from informers in workplaces, markets, railway stations, and the army. Footnote 84. NEP saw a broadening in the scope of law and the emergence of a more uniform judicial system. How far Soviet society should be regulated by law, however, remained a vexed question. In Marxist theory, it was assumed that law was an instrument whose function was to uphold property and class relations, and the expectation was that it would eventually wither away as socialist society was achieved. Lenin, though trained as a lawyer, had little time for his profession, and certainly did not believe that law had a role to play in curbing the powers of the state or in protecting the individual against the state. Yet the Civil War had seen a staggering rise in the crime rate with which the judicial organs had struggled to deal. So if only for pragmatic reasons, 
it was felt to be imperative to re-establish a framework of law and legal institutions. In 1922, a criminal code was enacted, followed by a statute and court organization, and the following year, by a code of criminal procedure. Footnote 85. A tiered court system was put in place that was subject to formal procedures and reliant on trained professionals. The code drew to a significant extent on elements of Tsarist jurisprudence, although the ethos of the judicial system remained one of leniency towards criminals from the toiling classes and one geared towards rehabilitation. This was a period of considerable experimentation in judicial practice. In particular, many imaginative schemes were devised to rehabilitate young criminals, although such schemes were hampered by lack of cash. Lawyers remained thin on the ground, so the system continued to rely on lay judges and assessors who were poorly paid and dependent on the goodwill of local officials. The office of procurator was restored, and soon became the most powerful judicial agency. By 1928, all procurators were party members. Footnote 86. Nevertheless, the judiciary failed to develop real independence from the state, and its powers to defend the individual against the state were feeble. In seeing law primarily as a means to defend the state, the Bolsheviks unwittingly reproduced an ethos that was deeply rooted in Tsarist political culture. Contrary to expectation, the crime rate did not fall with the end of the Civil War, although crimes of violence did. In 1922, the regime resolved that a professional police force was necessary. But it placed the cost on local Soviets, which meant that numbers fell by 60%, and salaries remained low. Consequently, through the 1920s, the police survived by graft, and in the countryside especially, they relied on the law of the fist. Footnote 87. The countryside remained undergoverned, following a slashing of the size of the militia in 1924. The number of the police in the RSFSR rose between 1926 and 1929 to around 80,000, but half of these were attached to state institutions. Footnote 88. This meant that the ratio of police to population was actually lower than in the Tsarist period. In keeping with the return to normalcy, economic crimes such as embezzlement, sabotage, pilfering state property, counterfeiting, production of liquor, and trade in contraband all rose. Around 1925, something of a moral panic erupted about the rising tide of hooliganism. This category could legally encompass anything from rape to rowdiness, drunkenness to staying away from work after payday. The majority of those convicted were working-class males under the age of 25, in contrast to the late imperial period, when the average offender was rather older and less likely to be a worker. Footnote 89. In the countryside, the peasants continued to show confidence in the court system, as they had done in the late Tsarist era, often traveling long distances to achieve judicial resolution, especially in cases of assault, slander, divorce, alimony, theft, and damage to property. Footnote 90. An effective appeal system now existed, and peasants appealing judicial decisions sometimes modeled their appeals on traditional ritual lament as did petitioners to state organs more generally, 
and threw themselves on the mercy of the judge. Their appeals would decry their fate, but, in a new twist, often place blame for their misdeeds on the harmful social influences to which they had been subject in the old society. Footnote 91 And that's going to do it for this week. Next time we will be finishing up this chapter on this period and moving forward. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to sandimage.org to find lots of his work there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.